This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with uh, former members of the U.S. intelligence community and those who write about them. Today, we have a very special return guest. His name is Seth Jones, and he's with CSIS. He occupies the Harold Brown chair. He also teaches at um, Johns Hopkins SAIS and the Naval Postgraduate School. Back last November, Seth did a presentation for us on his fabulous book, A Covert Action. And now he's got a brand new book out, and today he's going to tell us about it. Seth, welcome to AFIO Now. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be back on uh, and great to be interacting with AFIO and its members. So thanks for joining us. What I'd like to do is I'm going to start by sharing my screen. And I want to talk a little bit about one of the really the, the most important trends in competition. So there's been a lot of discussion, quite rightly, even with the fall of Kabul and the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, that the U.S. is in the midst of really a tectonic shift away from counterterrorism, or at least a predominant focus on counterterrorism, and a shift towards interstate competition. It's not new to the current U.S. administration. We saw it in the national defense strategy and the national security strategy of the Trump administration. We see it in the interim national security strategic guidance and the in-development national security strategy of the Biden administration. And what they essentially do is shift the focus of U.S. national security and competition in particular to state-based actors such as China and Russia, ones that could compete or at least want to compete with the U.S. Uh, on a global level. And, and what, I'd, what I'd like to do is to push back a little bit, not that... Uh, that interstate competition is not a future trend, but I think the way it is being conceptualized by many, that is the possibility, strong possibility of uh, a fight against Russia in the Baltics or uh, the war planning, the O plans, uh, the scenarios, the war games that have gone on with, uh, with China in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Straits, while important, miss the vast majority of day-to-day -day competition that is taking place. There's a lot of discussion. So I pulled uh, one of the most famous war games uh, that Rand ran a series of them and then published in cooperation with the U.S. Department of Defense for many of them. The Russians conduct an invasion. They take the Baltic capital, uh, uh, take several of the Bal Baltic capitals in a matter of hours, and then the U.S. and NATO find themselves in a very difficult position of having to uh, figure out how to respond to, to Russian conventional and potentially even nuclear uh, war in the Baltics. We've also seen a lot of war gaming around the Taiwan Straits, so uh, this is an example uh, based on um, uh, war games of the uh, Taiwan Straits crisis. The issue here is that while it's important to be preparing for these kinds of conflicts, the issue is that these are likely to be very low probability events. And we saw this during the Cold War when the, the U.S. and the Soviets came very close to blows uh, around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and both Moscow and Washington 
recognized that there were enormous costs to their economies, to the global economy, to populations. So there's a high blood cost if there were to be conventional and particularly nuclear war uh, between nuclear armed states. Some recent assessments have indicated that uh, U.S. war with China could trigger significant declines in the military capabilities, in the gross domestic product of the U.S. and and China, as well as a number of other states, including in the Pacific. So there are going to be huge downsides to a conventional, let alone a nuclear war uh, between major powers. This is certainly just as true between the U.S. and Russia as it would be here with the U.S. and China. So what this means, in in my view, is, is what we're already seeing, which is that competition is largely at the irregular level. That is below the threshold of conventional and nuclear uh, conflict. So this is the focus of the book. It focuses on uh, competition well below those thresholds, but where the objective of adversary states, so think Beijing or Moscow, or even on a regional level, Tehran, focusing on information campaigns, could be the use of public diplomacy, psychological operations, disinformation. It could be the support to state and non-state partners. We'll see that uh, with Russian use of private military companies and Iranian use of proxies in Yemen and Iraq and and other locations. A hefty dose of covert action, including uh, offensive cyber action by various types of uh, competitors, the Chinese PLA, Russian GRU and SVR, as well as uh, their both respective uses of non-state actors, whether it's the Internet Research Agency on the Russian side or whether it's um, Chinese uh, activists uh, operating in concert with the PLA, the People's Liberation Army on the Chinese side. Then we also see various aspects of economic coercion, and we'll look at that with some examples like the Belt and Road Initiative of China. So these are irregular aspects of competition where U.S. adversaries are not going to send tanks or fighter jets or use artillery against U.S. forces on a battlefield. They're going to attempt to weaken the United States through information campaigns, mis- and disinformation against support to non-state partners, their attempts to be deniable to weaken the U.S., and to strengthen their own hand, to conduct a range of different types of covert action, and then to use uh, economic conversion. These are the tools of irregular warfare. Now, I use irregular warfare. It's a doctrinal term in the U.S. military. But as we see with a number of other actors, they have various terms for this. Russians have historically used active measures, uh, was uh, the purview of the KGB particularly Service A of the KGB during the Cold War. Now it's really in the hands of the GRU, the uh, main intelligence directorate within the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense, as well as the SBR, the External Intelligence Agency. In addition, we see the Russians using uh, significant denial and deception, or maskarovka. Uh, The Iranians have terms that they use. Among the more interesting ones uh, include soft war or jungi narm. They also have terms for non-classic, uh, non-classic war, think asymmetric or irregular war. 
And the Chinese uh, have terms. Three warfares in particular involves three types of warfare. It involves legal warfare or the use of legal tools. It involves media or public relations war. So the use of media, state-run or other types. And then it, it, uh, it uses the third, which is psychological uh, warfare. So uh, using various types of denial, deception, and, and other kinds of activities. The Chinese also have terms for struggle, including external and uh, against external and, and internal challengers. So again, when we talk about uh, irregular warfare from the Chinese, the Russian, and even the Iranian perspective, they use slightly different terms and they, they mean slightly different things. But note in particular, and you see it in spades with the Iranians and the, and the Chinese here, they, they're talking about war. I mean, this is not just, I, when, when I say irregular warfare, I, I mean warfare. Uh, think Sun Tzu rather than the kind of the Clausewitzian concept of forces fighting against each other in set pieces on a battlefield. And this is, I think, the, the future of, of warfare. So I've included here a picture of uh, Valerie Gerasimov. He's the chief of the Army staff. The rough equivalent of the of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the in the United States, Gerasimov. I think as I have watched him uh, from his early years in tank school up through his deployments in Poland, in Chechnya, in the Baltics, and then as his time as uh, as essentially the the head of uh, uh, the the chief of the Army Staff. Grasmop has become, in many ways, a very active student of the way the U.S. has conducted warfare in Bosnia using a very limited uh, footprint, military footprint on the ground, but using a heavy dose of air and intelligence. Uh, the U.S. overthrow of the Taliban regime in 2001, which involved very little uh, U.S. infantry on the ground, but instead used special operations forces and CIA, and also air power, uh, the, uh, the use of, uh, of irregular power really to overthrow the, uh, the, the government in Libya, uh, which, which was also a special operations and intelligence presence on the ground, and air power, leveraging local actors uh, to do the vast majority of the fighting, the maneuver elements. The Russians have watched very carefully. They've also watched the U.S. get bogged down in large deployments in Iraq and Syria. So I think the, the, the Russians over time developed a series of strategies and campaigns heavily focused on competing with the U.S., not in set-piece battles, but using irregular methods. So if we look at Crimea, the Russians seized Crimea almost entirely through Spetsnaz uh, and other special operations forces and intelligence. They seized territory without essentially firing a shot. They did not invade with large numbers of ground forces. They didn't do what they did in Afghanistan in the 1980s and deploy 100 plus thousand Russian forces. Neither did they do that in eastern Ukraine in areas like Luhansk and Donetsk where they used, again, Spetsnaz, 
KSSO forces, Russian Special Operations Forces, and intelligence units to start a war and run it through partners or proxies in eastern Ukraine against the government. So again, didn't use large numbers of Russian forces, leveraged locals on the ground. This is a quintessential example, Ukraine, of the use of irregular means uh, to target a government that had shifted its focus from being very pro-Russian to pro-European and pro-US, looking towards possible NATO membership or membership in the European Union. Um, This is something that that, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, could not stand. So we saw him then resort to irregular means uh, against the Ukrainian government. Syria is another quintessential example where the Russians by 2015 became very concerned about the the, uh, 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 takeover of territory by rebel groups, including the Islamic State. And then we see the Russians become directly engaged in supporting elements on the ground in 2015. So what does Russian warfare look like? We see the Russians, not unlike their learning lessons from the U.S. experience, using Spetsnaz in Syria, using air power, and using some maritime forces uh, from the Mediterranean Sea or the Black Sea. But the primary maneuver force on the ground was Syrian units, including some of the high-end Tiger units, as well as Lebanese Hezbollah, a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, as well as militia forces from recruited from Palestinian territory, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, the Hashid al-Shabi, some of the Shia militias, uh, and, and from other theaters. So here, the Russians are leveraging as maneuver elements to take over territory, including around Aleppo, um, non-state actors operating with state actors, including with Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guards, Quds Force activity to take over territory. So it's, again, heavy dose of using irregular means uh, where the Russians themselves are not taking on uh, organizations in set-piece battles. There are also some very interesting components of Russian irregular activity, and that is we saw earlier the Russian use of irregular means to conduct operations in eastern Ukraine. They also used some of the most effective and aggressive offensive cyber campaigns using black energy, in-destroyer, gray energy to target the Ukrainian government, critical infrastructure, major blackouts in Ukrainian cities. This was a component of warfare. The Russians using offensive cyber against the Ukrainian government and against companies operating in Ukraine, including critical infrastructure, uh, as as a means of punishing them for for switching their allegiance from uh, pro-Russian to pro-Western. Again, irregular means. We've seen them also, uh, Russians, either directly or indirectly uh, targeting uh, the U.S. homeland. We certainly saw it in the 2016 and elements of the 2020 U.S. presidential elections. But it's also worth noting that the colonial pipeline involved, uh, in part, uh, offensive 
cyber hacktivists that were operating from Russian soil. No one operates from Russian soil without the awareness, and in this case, the support, uh, even the, uh, the, the informal support of the Russian government. So we had, we had the individuals conduct a cyber attack against uh, the Colonial Pipeline and its, its, uh, its computer systems. The Colonial Pipeline then turned off the spigots uh, for the pipelines operating in the Mid-Atlantic area. And I think those of us that lived in that area felt that impact in long lines at gas stations. Now, that only lasted a few days, but it really was an example of what sustained cyber uh, offensive cyber operations could mean. Of course, the Russians have also done this against American companies, multinationals, U.S. government agencies, particularly the SVR and the GRU. So. Russians have been pretty active. In addition, the Russians have also been involved in irregular warfare overseas uh, through the uh, quasi-deniable private military companies. Probably the best example is the Wagner Group. And this map highlights areas where we see Russian private military companies involved in offensive combat operations, intelligence collection activities, train and advise and assist site security around areas that are uh, being used for copper or rare minerals or oil, which it's extracted from the ground, even diamonds in some cases. Uh, so the, the Russians have used front companies, shell companies on the economic and financial side, and they've used private military companies including the Wagner Group, uh, to provide, again, everything from site security to offensive operations, operating with fighter jets, artillery, quite competent. So as we see uh, operations in parts of Eastern Europe, in Belarus and, and Ukraine, also in the Balkans, as well as in uh, uh, a little bit in South Asia, including recently uh, active Russian activity in Afghanistan, as well as in Syria, and then a particularly significant increase in, uh, in Africa. Mali, Libya, Chad, Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, um, as well as Latin America, including Nicaragua, and in particular, Venezuela. There's an example of a Russian uh, Wagner private military company base uh, this one is in Barango, Central African Republic. Uh, we can see in here and in broader shots of the satellite imagery, uh, Russian private military company activity, firing ranges, parking locations. Um, these are areas where they use for base of operations so they can go out and conduct training. And again, this is these are largely deniable efforts um, done in cooperation with uh, Russia's GRU. It's main directorate or its SBR, its external intelligence agencies. There are satellite imagery shots, and we've got them in a lot of different countries, but this gives you a flavor for what uh, some of the Russian PMC bases actually look like. I want to move a little bit to China. I mean, this is the country that's given us Mao and on guerrilla warfare. It's also given us Sun Tzu. So while there are understandable concerns about Russia's conventional and even its nuclear military buildup and the capabilities of the 
People's Liberation Army Navy or Army or Air Force, uh, the Chinese have been the quintessential irregular uh, uh, competitor of the U.S. I think this is an area that the Chinese pose a significant danger that is often overlooked. So if we look at at probably uh, China's most famous economic uh, activity, it's the Belt and Road Initiative, or uh, BRI. And what we see is with BRI, it's got its maritime Silk Road in blue. It's got its uh, Silk Road economic uh, Silk Road economic belt in red, and then I've highlighted railroads and oil pipelines and gas pipelines. What the Chinese have done is provided significant funding to build infrastructure in these areas, uh, as well as as laid out uh, 5G and then eventually 6G networks. So there's there's clearly a broader cyber end uh, to this. And then and this is where the irregular uh, comes in. This is not just about trade or economic activity. This is also about using the economic leverage for political purposes. So pressuring governments in areas where the Chinese have provided funding for investments, uh, using, that, using that for leverage, including within their own governments and in their own countries or in the UN Security Council on how these countries vote or what they support, what initiative they, uh, they support regarding Hong Kong or Taiwan or the Uyghurs more broadly, or Tibet, so, or on issues that are important to China on foreign policy. So this is the use of infrastructure and trade and broader economic investment to pursue political issues, including national security issues of importance to the Chinese government. This is, this is irregular influence. And we've also seen, in addition to those Belt and Road initiatives, the Chinese using uh, their influence to do, this is an example on the right side of the Fiery Cross Reef. Now, the Fiery Cross Reef in previous images was just an atoll. It's essentially uh, water, sand, and coral reef, coral reefs. So it was Subi Reef, Gavin Reef, uh, Johnson South, Mischief Reef. Uh, Hughes Reef, a range of the reefs in the Spratly Islands and the South China Sea. Uh, what the Chinese did over time is bring out large dredgers. Uh, they said this was being done uh, for peaceful means, including for fishing boats. Uh, fishermen, it would be helpful to have islands as they fished in and around the South China Sea to be able to station or to be able to stop for refueling or refitting. What they did is take those dredgers and build islands. And on those islands, they put airstrips so they could land fighter aircraft. They could put uh, electronic surveillance, including signals intelligence platforms. They could put uh, missiles, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, uh, and they put a whole range of military infrastructure. So these became what, are, what they are now, which is military bases, much like Ukraine not seized by conventional forces. The Chinese did not send in subs. They didn't send in destroyers. They didn't send in frigates. They sent in fishing vessels. They sent in dredgers. And occasionally, they sent in 
maritime militia irregular means to uh, establish control of territory. So again, we see similar methods between the Russians and the Chinese, different types of territory, but the attempt to acquire territory using largely irregular means. See them also compete with the United States, a heavy dose of espionage, including uh, we, we can see a number of similarities between the F-35, which is really the, the, uh, the primary right now U.S. stealth fighter, and the, the Chinese J-31. The J-31 uh, was heavily benefited from massive amounts of espionage to steal technology, uh, the frames, and other aspects of, of the uh, platform. So they've used this uh, along those lines. Chinese have also heavily used uh, espionage to compete for 5 and then 6G as the next tech frontier. Interestingly, uh, if we look at some of the arrests that have been made by the FBI in the last few years, we've seen a heavy focus in the U.S., the Chinese using the uh, Thousand Talents program or using universities. So we've seen professors at Harvard, for example, arrested for illegal activity involving uh, taking money as part of the Thousand Talents program, not reporting it, particularly when they're receiving U.S. Department of Defense or U other U.S. government funding. Chinese have heavily used Confucius Institutes in the U.S. And I think it's also very important to highlight on the business end too, massive use of uh, influence directed at companies. Companies like the NBA had a general manager from, from the Houston Rockets that criticized Chinese activity in Hong Kong. The Chinese response was to take down the entire NBA from programming in China, cost the NBA hundreds of millions of dollars. And, uh, and only after a year or two did China start uh, re-showing re uh, NBA programs. We see the same kind of influence in Hollywood, where uh, th there's been tremendous pressure against uh, U.S. and other multinational uh, movie production companies that want to sell their movies in China and have Chinese watch them. They can't do that if uh, if they've got any individuals or characters or plots that are critical of the Communist Party of China, of, of uh, China in general, the Chinese government, or takes on controversial issues, including Tibet, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, or other activities. So we see Chinese irregular influence across the board. We've also seen significant uh, activity by the Iranians on the irregular side. This is even probably more important in many ways for the Iranians because they don't have even the conventional or nuclear option that the Russians and the Chinese have. This is their primary comparative advantage. It is the use of irregular means. So what we've seen over the past several decades is the Iranians continue to provide assistance to actors in Lebanon, including Lebanese Hezbollah, 
Syria, including uh, militia forces and the Syrian government, but militia forces down near the Israeli border, the Hashid al-Shabi or some of the Shia militias in Iraq. And then more recently with Uzbek, Tajik, uh, some Hazara, and even some Taliban forces in Afghanistan. So the Iranians have a uh, have now a broad swath of territory that we see here where they're able to move goods, material, money, people uh, across a wide swath of territory, again, based predominantly on irregular means from the Mediterranean now into South Asia. Iranians have spent the bulk of their time and effort training partner forces done through the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Quds Force or IRGCQF by providing funding, uh, providing technological capabilities for uh, cruise missiles, for drones, and for other kinds of platforms to sub-state actors in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, including the Houthis, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Lebanon, and other countries. Numbers actually pretty large, up to 250,000 uh, uh, soldiers from essentially militia forces on the ground across the board in, in these uh, countries. This is, this is the land bridge that extends from Lebanon all the way now through Afghanistan. So here's an example. Uh, I talk a little bit about this in the book of uh, RGC Kuds Force training facilities. This one is near Tehran. You can see the combat training facilities. You can see the mosques, uh, shipping and storage housing. Um, and you can see the expansion over time from an original base. This is where the Iranians have brought in individuals, put them through training, and then sent them back to countries like Yemen or Syria or Lebanon or Iraq uh, to uh, conduct activities in cooperations with the, uh, with the IRGC. In addition, on the irregular side, the Iranians have developed a, a pretty lethal ballistic and cruise missile capability that will continue to expand through at least 2030. So this brings me to a broad conclusion here, which is a lot of people in the US focus, and it's probably a bit of mirror imaging here, on competition with state-based adversary that is largely at the conventional or the nuclear level. And this is where the US is strongest. This has got a strong, it's got a robust, it's got a well-equipped military, its army, its navy, its air force, its Marine Corps. And in fights between the U.S. and many of these countries, the U.S. You know, stands as a tough adversary. It doesn't win all war games. It doesn't, it, you know, a number of the war games I participate, participated in have been stalemates. Uh, but at the very least, the focus of much of the U.S. effort is on conventional and nuclear competition. And in particular, it's in very specific areas like the Baltics, South China Sea, and the Taiwan Straits. That is an erroneous calculation on at least two fronts. That is not how the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese are actually viewing competition. They view, as I argue in this book, 
U.S. as the main enemy. They view competition as largely irregular, and they view competition, particularly the Chinese and the Russians, as global in nature. And in addition to the military side, a heavy focus on economic, technological, and intelligence use uh, for political influence. So this goes well below the threshold of conventional and nuclear competition into the irregular uh, field. And probably the best example of this is the Wolf Warrior movies that uh, China has shown. Wolf Warrior 2 is the highest grossing movie in Chinese history. And what's particularly notable is, one, it takes place not in China, it takes place in Africa. Two, the primary hero on the Chinese side is not an infantry fighter, it's a special operations, uh, former special operations soldier. It's an irregular, uh, it's, it's, it's an irregular operator. And three, the primary enemy is the United States. So it's China operating in Africa through irregular means against the United States. And it is the most popular movie in Chinese history. This tells us a lot. The culture here tells us a lot about how the Chinese are thinking, not just about the U.S., but about what competition is likely to look like over the foreseeable future. And this is where the U.S. needs to start to, I think, better focus its time and effort. Let me end on a positive note, because I think the issue at the end of the day for the U.S. is that it is a competition, the competition in part between systems, military, economic, and ideological systems. And I think one of the advantages that the U.S. has over uh, the authoritarian Chinese, Russian, and Iranian systems, it supports capitalism, supports freedom of the press, supports democracy, freedom of religion. At the end of the day, these are very important strengths and they're very important weaknesses of these competitors. So what is what is a U.S. foreign policy as part of irregular competition look like? One is it holds very close to these U.S. principles. The U.S. needs to operate from its strength in supporting these kinds of values overseas, not with the barrel of a gun, uh, uh, not invading foreign countries, at least to the extent that the U.S. has done these over the past two or three decades, but supporting these principles. Two, U.S. needs to conduct offensive operations. Again, not necessarily military, but irregular ones. U.S. was strongest in the Cold War when it conducted offensive operations ideologically against the Soviet Union through its Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which start off as covert action programs and then migrate to, uh, to uh, open, uh, direct, and, uh, and State Department-run programs. Uh, covert action programs like support to solidarity in Poland, so aiding uh, opposition groups 
not with weapons in the solidarity case, uh, but with printer cartridges and ink. And of course, there were instances, including in Afghanistan, where it made sense to support individuals and groups, including the seven major Mujahideen groups fighting against the Soviets. But again, this was not the U.S. fighting directly the Soviet Union. This is weakening the Soviet Union through irregular means, through uh, support to non-state actors fighting the Soviets and their allies in Afghanistan. So the U.S. in part won its Cold War not by defeating the Soviet Union on the battlefield, but by defeating the Soviet political, economic, and systems largely through irregular means. Conventional nuclear power were certainly important to deter Soviet activity, but irregular means were actually the means by which competition occurred on an hourly and a daily basis. And this gets to a future that looks a lot like what George Kennan called political warfare, now called irregular warfare today. And it's based on what Winston Churchill ironically says democracy is the worst form of government except for all others. And this is really the, the most important aspect of power and the advantage that the U.S. and its democratic allies and partners have moving forward. So this is what the book touches on. And thanks to, to Jim, I'm going to hand this back to you. The new book is entitled Three Dangerous Men. Russia, China, Iran, and the rise of irregular warfare. I want to thank Seth Jones and CSIS for a timely and very prescient presentation. Thank you very much.